Grab your trowel and a cup of coffee. You're listening to Archeo Cafe. I'm your host, Otis Crandell. Hello, I'm Otis, and I'm here talking today with Mariuka Vornicu, who is in Yash, in northeastern part of Romania. Yes. So, hi, I'm Mariuka Vornicu. I work at the moment at the Institute of Archaeology in Yash. The institute belongs to the Romanian Academy. I'm a researcher there. So, you, you're working in archaeology. What kind of analyses do you do, you do there? Yes, I'm an, I'm an archaeologist. I'm I'm having um, I'm making a lot of work in field archaeology, so excavations, especially for the fifth uh, and fourth millennium BC, which means the Chalcolithic period in Romania. And um, also, I'm interested and I'm working on the analysis of the lithic tools, the tools of these Chalcolithic people, tools that were made from uh, stone. Because at that moment, uh, the tools, the people were using the tools made of stone, of bone, and not from metal. They were just discovering metal in the Chalcolithic era, and they were using it mostly for adornments. Their uh, metal was like a, in the power display kit and not a, a usual raw material for making tools. So I'm um, focusing on the tools that these people made from stone, and um, I'm trying to understand how they how these people, these um, prehistoric people, used these tools. What kind of tools do they make out of stone? For our listeners to tell, what, what kind of things are they, what type of items would people of that period make from the stone? So from stone, you can do a lot of um, tools. You can have, um, you, I'm studying uh, knapped stone. So uh, through knapping stone, especially flint, you can obtain tools that have a very sharp edge like blades, like knives, you can use them like knives. You can also retouch the edges and use these uh, tools like scrappers, but also you can retouch them, you can modify them and transform them into arrowheads, into borers, into drills. And it's like uh, <laughs> um, a toolkit that you have today, but uh, today is made from metal, but up then it was made from stone. It must have had a very very big economic importance yeah so but they they had other materials that they worked with as well didn't they yeah they also had bones they were transforming bones from the animals that they consumed it they so they ate the animals and bones they used in uh, making owls from the bones spoons from bones also from stone, they were polishing stone and making axes from the from these stones, chisels, all um, all kind of, of tools that you would find in a modern household, but from stone and bone. In your research, the people that you're studying, they they had stone technology. They had they had agriculture, domesticated animals. Uh, they had. They had some knowledge of metal, but it wasn't it wasn't yet a big functional thing. In the time period that you're studying, they have agriculture. They live in one place. Just to give the give the listeners some idea of what is this period. So, when did you decide you wanted to become an archaeologist? I think um, when I was in the um, in, in the primary school. 
I always liked history, so history was my favorite part of the school. When I went to school, I always liked history. And after that, I, I think in 1996, we had the cable TV in our home. So it was after the revolution. I mean, the Romanian revolution from 1989. We passed from communist to um, capitalism. And um, in the middle 90s, everybody was starting to get cable TV. So my parents also got cable TV. And uh, at that time, I, I started to watch TV. TV programs like from Discovery and National Geographic and my it looked like my world expanded, <laughs> my knowledge expanded and I was very fascinated what I could see there. Like the pyramids, the Maya civilizations and all this stuff that I was already fond of because of as I told you I, I always liked history at school. And when also in high school I was very sure that I will I liked I would like to be an archaeologist. But after I started the faculty, I understood that in Romania I could not get a degree in Egyptology or Maya or things like that that were fascinating at the time. But I was, And I started to focus on the local uh, communities from the prehistory, which turned out to be very fascinating. And there is a lot of work to do here about these local, um, uh, local prehistoric communities. You started out, your initial love was of, of history yeah. and like ancient history. And that led you to local archaeology. Yeah. You you went on to study a lot of the local local archaeology, the local prehistory, and now you're working on this Copper Age, the the stone tools. So what what exactly are you doing with the tools? So I know there's a lot of things you can study about the tool the stone tools. I'm I I study them, but what I'm studying with them is different from what you're studying with them. What can you tell our listeners maybe a little bit about what kind of analyses you do with the stone tools? What what kind of information are you trying to learn from the stone tools? Yeah, so for prehistory, as you know, we don't have written sources. So practically all the all the information that you can get about prehistoric communities, you find you can take all this information only from the archaeological material. So practically, I'm, uh, we are trying, uh, we archaeologists, we are trying to analyze all the material that we get from excavation in every possible way that we can find answers to our questions. So I'm interested in um, in, in seeing how people used this, uh, the tools, the stone tools. I'm doing that um, through analyzing them at the microscope, uh, looking for the useware from uh, the, the traces that the use of these tools left on the tools. Also, I am um, I'm interested on the raw material of the tools, from where it did it came from, from where did the people get it, how how much was the distance from one uh, from the raw material exploitation to the site where I found the tools. How do you know what they used it for? Okay. What are you looking for under the microscope to, to say it was used for this or it was used for another thing? Can you give us some a, a description or a bit of examples of what kind of distinctions you can make? I'm, I'm looking at the modifications of the, to- of the tool under the microscope or the modifications of the edge of the tool um, in terms of uh, removals of rounding, but also uh, the surface of the surface of the tool under if it, if, if, if it developed some kind of uh, polish from being used 
and how I know that all these modifications were produced by using the tool in one manner is um, comparing these the archaeological tools with the experimental tools. So I have a, an experimental database with the tools that I made. I napped uh, some tools and I used them in different uh, activities that I suppose the prehistoric people were also using the tools, like uh, meat cutting, like hide scrapping, like cereal uh, ripping, like uh, bone working. So my experimental tools, uh, I'm looking at the microscope of the, my experimental tools to see if, what are the modifications in the edge and the, uh, and the surface of the uh, experimental tools, and I compare them with the modifications that I see on the archaeological tools. So do you, do you make a lot of these replica tools for testing? My, my database is very small because I'm at the beginning of doing that. Um, I work at the Institute it's four years since I'm working there. At the beginning, I didn't have any microscope. It was <laughs> very difficult. And so... So you've kind of started from the very beginning and built, started building all of this. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. I started building, yeah, from the very it's an impressive work to start from the very beginning. Like I think a lot of people, they're starting out, someone else has the, the laboratory already, or someone else has already collected the materials, or someone else has already produced the, the reference collection. So it's a big work you're doing to just start out from the beginning, setting up the lab, getting the raw materials, finding the raw materials, producing your replica tools, using them. Making making this collection, this comparative collection, it's a big it's a big amount of work there. Yeah, it's a big amount of work, and you have to be very organized, and you have to be very serious about it. But when you have I don't know like um, financial problems, meaning financial meaning like the institution cannot afford the microscope, then it's like mm, why am I doing this? It's like mm, I don't know <laughs> wing cutting or. I guess it depends on how big is the institution. Like if it's yeah, yeah, in a small country. Also, in my country, the the money that the government gives for for finance, financing the research and development, it's it's limited. So it's <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's a really it's an unfortunate situation that I think it it becomes all too common, and you see it in some other countries as well. Yeah, mm -hmm. the financing of our. It's impressive that you've, what you've done in, you know, in this time with limited resources. Uh, I think I think it will be quite valuable to other people as well that can base their work off of what you created. I, I hope I, I I'm planning to expand my database, my experimental database. I. But I hope that I'll, I I don't know I'll succeed in doing in having a database that others could use in the future, like the students from the University in Yash, if they will be interested in archaeology, things like that, or other researchers from Romania. Yeah, well, that's a big thing of, of doing science, is that it's not just a one thing. It's like one thing leads to another thing, and someone else then takes it another step further. I think a lot of people forget that, that they're, they're looking, oh, this one huge thing that one person must do. No, each each of us makes a, is a little chain 
and after a while this all accumulates and we get something big based on all the, the steps that have come along the way that everyone everyone has done a part of what becomes something big. What do you think are some of the most interesting things that you've uh, not not necessarily discovered, but that you've uh, realized or that some something interesting you've maybe discovered? It could be information. I mean, I mean, a specific like an object. But what What would you say is uh, one of your most interesting discoveries for you? What something that you found interesting? Uh, for me, <laughs> so uh, I have to think about it. Um, so I I didn't find anything like spectacular or something like it's wow and uh, I don't know change the history with it or things like that. So just trying to make small steps and finding things about uh, about my research on lithic tools and I have to think about what is most interesting. Yeah, I think a lot of times we get that question, what's the most interesting thing you've found or the most interesting discovery you've made? And uh, I think it's because people are watching. They're watching the Discovery Channel yeah. and they on those shows they show uh, the really big thing, the most, the biggest, the, the strangest, the oldest. And they assume that that's actually what we're doing, that we're looking for the these extreme outliers or the... The most valuable thing, or the most, I, I don't, don't know, know. colorful. Yeah, I don't thing. know if there is the most valuable thing for me, or the most uh, important thing, because it's like everything is important, and every uh, assembly that I'm uh, working on, it's different from the other, and but also similar in other ways to other assemblages, and I'm trying to have a big, a bigger picture with them, but it it takes a lot of work and. It's like every time I'm um, analyzing something new, I get very excited, and it's it's like putting another I don't know another knowledge new new knowledge on my head, and it's, it's like it's every, for me everything is important. I I cannot think of something that is the most important. For yeah, well, I think a lot of people also find I know in my work and some other people I've talked to, what they find interesting is not that one big thing that they find at the end, but the process of going through it and making these small realizations, figuring these little things out that sort of excites people. Mm, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's take a, let's take a break for about five minutes and then we're we're gonna we're gonna come back and we'll talk a little bit more about archaeology. Okay. Okay, sure. Okay, welcome back from the break. Right now we're we're talking to Mariuka Vorniku in northeastern part of Romania. So what aspects of your work do you think will have the most impact in the future? I mean, we none of us know the future. We we study the past. But if you were looking I don't know 30 or 40 years into the future, what do you think people will look back and say, "Oh yeah, that was that was something an interesting that had an impact on on someone else's work in the future of your work what do you think will have what aspect of your work do you hope will have the most impact from the future um, i hope i will contribute to uh, to understanding 
the everyday life of prehistoric people because at the moment we have um, at least for the Calcolithical Romania you have only the archaeological records meaning the remains of the houses where people lived the ceramics that people used the stone tools they used but um, the Romanian uh, soil does not uh, allow the preservation of uh, materials like uh, wood like textiles like uh, hide and this, um, these materials are lost for Romanian archaeology. For, uh, for me, studying prehistory, I, I will never find this for sure in, uh, in my uh, excavations. So by studying the stone tools, I hope that I will recreate or I will try to recreate some of and understand some of the, um, the activities that are now lost from, for us for good. Because all these craft activities that people were making in, um, in, in the prehistory, like weaving, like making uh, leather garments or things like that, they, they, they had a huge impact in the economic life, but it's lost for us. So maybe through studying stone tools, I will, I don't know, I'll surprise some of the, uh, the importance that uh, these craft activities, this uh, also, not only craft, but also uh, subsistence activities like uh, cereal harvesting. Maybe I will have some impact one day in um, understanding these uh, invisible uh, activities from the prehistoric world, because as I told you, for us, still are still invisible. Yeah, I guess that's it's one of the one of the things about archaeology is a lot of the stuff is just not there if it's biodegradable. Yeah. You know, probably ninety nine point nine percent of stuff by now. By the time we find it, it's gone. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we're we're lucky if you find like a discoloration in the sand where where there used to be a, a large hole holding up a house, or uh, I mean, sometimes sometimes uh, you know, for some of the listeners, maybe they don't know, but sometimes you will in some situation you'll find this stuff. Like if you're in a really salty area. You know, it's a salty swamp. Sometimes the salt will preserve stuff for a really long time. Uh, usually larger things. Or if you if you go up into frozen areas, you may find stuff frozen. Like they find in, uh, in Siberia, they find like mammoths. Uh, when they found uh, Utsi in the Alps. But these are the rare things. When you do find one of those, it's we learn so much because... You almost never find these biodegradable stuff. So, yeah, what you're doing with the stones, it's important. You're getting all that last little bit of information out of it that can be gotten from them. Uh, I think it's interesting as well that that you're looking at the day-to-day -day lives of people because these are people like we are today. Yep. They they had the same at least biological needs that we have. Probably a lot of the same emotional and social needs that we have. So they would have developed things. They may have developed them different than us. There's so many different ways you can do things. And by learning about how they did things, sometimes we can actually maybe learn a, a better way that we could do things today. Or we could say, well, you know what? Some of the stuff that we do every day, we assume, well, that's, that's the logical way to do it. And then you find out people in another country do it a different way. And even some of our own ancestors... Did it? You know, who lived in the same place that we live today? They did it differently. We realized that oh, a lot of what we're doing is 
just because we we chose to do it, our, our culture developed that way, but we could do it different ways. Yeah, so, moving on a bit from from your work, so what what is your impression of how archaeology and archaeologists are portrayed in in uh, fictional media? And you know, have you seen some good examples or some really bad examples? Yeah, um, I've noticed that in the last years, or at least in the last decade, a lot of movies have have like um, consultants that are researchers working on the problem that the movies are presenting. So I saw one about the excavations in Egypt at the beginning of the 20th century. I think it was a mini-series or things like that. I cannot remember the name now, but it was pretty accurate in my opinion. So I've, I've noticed that um, not only about archaeology in movies, but also about um, depicting the historical periods in movies, there, there is a progress, meaning that the producers and uh, the screenwriters are probably taking a lot of, uh, in serious, a lot of the advices from real researchers that are consultants to the these movies. Now I'm remembering, I think I was referring to this series Tutankhamun. So it's like four episode series. It's about Howard Carter and the excavations in Egypt when they found the tomb of Tutankhamun. But in my opinion, it depicts very well the time and how archaeology was at that time. So they are making a lot more movies now like that take place in prehistory that they seem to have researched these. This is interesting though. Uh, I don't know, did you see recently there was a movie called Alpha where it's a it's a hypothetical situation where the, the first dog is domesticated or, or a dog is domesticated from a from a wild dog thing. It takes place in Ice Age Europe. No, I haven't seen that movie. No, I, no, I didn't see the movie. You might like. It. I think anyone who is a dog person, and I know, I know you have a dog. Uh, <laughs> the, the listeners don't know this, but I know this. But I think anyone who's a dog person will will love this movie. And it's actually they they there was research done into it when the when the movie was made. It's a it's sort of a it's a drama uh, about. Uh, Potentially, how the first dog was domesticated uh, during uh, it takes place in the the in the Paleolithic. That I saw and I really liked, and uh, for me, I would recommend it. It's an owl, Le Dernier Neanderthal. So it's it's an, uh, it's a French movie about the extinction of the Neanderthals, I mean, not the extinction, but the last of the Neanderthals that were living in Europe and how they met the Homo sapiens and what kind of relations they get with the Homo sapiens. Maybe it's also romanticized, but I think it was a really nice movie. I think I might have seen it. This is it's not a recent movie, is it? This is from quite a while back. No, no. It's like 10 years ago, maybe. Yeah, I think I might have seen this. Uh... I also recently saw a film, William. It takes place in the very near future uh, where they they cloned a Neanderthal. And it was quite interesting because it's, 
from what I, I know about the Neanderthals and, and the Paleolithic, it seems that, that they did get some research to say, okay, well, what do we know about Neanderthals and what were some of the key differences, not just you know physically, but probably you know, socially about them. So it was an interesting look there. So I mean, I think that was an example of a movie that was you know, well, well researched. So in my in my uh, uh, in my country at the moment, there is a high interest from the public into um, into the people that lived here in the Iron Age, namely the Dacians, the people that were fighting the Romans. Uh, some of them were occupied by the the territories were occupied by the Roman the sorry the Roman Empire and other were left um, free. So in my country, there is like a high interest in this. It's like um, uh, they are making a lot of movies on it, also documentaries and also artistic films, like movies anyway. And uh, it's sometimes it's like a complete hysteria because um, a lot of people finding this Iron Age people, they're... Uh, their identity, their national identity, because uh, most of these Iron Age people were not conquered by the Romans, they lived free, or, or if they were conquered, they were bravely uh, fighting the Romans and things like that. So, um, in, in my country, you can see in these movies a lot of um, ideology, ideology of political ideology, and it's uh, it's, in my opinion, it's like um, not very, not such a good example on how to use archaeology and things that archaeology can provide in uh, movies or in documentaries and also in, um, I don't know, like um, in an augmentation of some um, uh, fake national identity. Well, I think this is a big thing that not only archaeology, but history in general. You'll see this all over the world that it is a a big tool used in politics. Uh, it's used to promote nationalism, uh, either to band people together or to separate mm-hmm. people based on a perceived uh, heritage. The bigger the history you can draw back, the more legitimacy, you know, it's easier to claim. Uh, it's easier to draw people around symbol. Uh, but I mean, it's, it's uh, in a lot of places, uh, Archaeology is used as a, a tool for for politics, uh, history as well. I mean, especially especially in the history, you, if you can read it and, it's, yeah. and it and agrees with what you want to, to be the story. But I think the one of the dangers in archaeology is that we have to make interpretations because we don't have the written record. We have a lot of gaps in information, and so uh, sometimes I think people will take what we say or take our research and present it out of context and for for their own personal objectives and sometimes they they, they, mis, they misrepresent what you know what we're what we're researching and yeah so it's it's uh yeah it's a it's quite commonly done there so we get a bit of a mixed uh presentation of archaeology and prehistory in the in the fiction what about in though some of the media, like where it should, you, we think it should be realistic, like on documentaries or in popular magazines or in the newspaper. How good do you think it is? Do you think it's usually correct, or 
not? <laughs> yeah, so in my opinion, there are two kinds of media that are presenting archaeology. So there is the media that it's uh, in touch with the archaeologist, and the archaeologist invites the media to the excavation and tries to explain. Many times, the people working in the media don't do not understand everything but sometimes but they, they are trying to present it right and correctly but there is also this kind of media that is um, very aggressive and it looks only the sensational and then it's the archaeology it's distorted and many times as i told you it's also the case of the the iron age but also not only but in my opinion at least in romania the media it's okay, it's presented okay, the archaeology, if it doesn't have uh, political implications. Because you can have also media that it's involved in politics and they will write what the, I don't know, the uh, politic party wants to about everything, including archaeology or uh, preventive archaeology as the case with destruction of monuments and things like that. The, the media is involved with the protection of this? monuments and the protection of, of uh, historical and prehistorical sites? Mm, the media, it depends on who who's working in the media, but so yeah, if somebody calls like a local newspaper and is complaining about, yeah, the media will be receptive about it, but if the media is like serving one uh, entrepreneur that is making uh-huh. a building somewhere and uh, he doesn't want archaeologists, then media it's like, mm. <laughs> but in, in general, I, I I think it's okay with the media and the way they are they are presenting the archaeological news. And also I have to mention the fact that a lot of, of my colleagues uh, from the institute, I have one colleague that is organizing meetings with children from school to present them what archaeology really is, to teach them what is archaeology and what is um, sensational and it's not archaeology and he's like trying to explain everything from the system of excavation to the system of analyzing uh, materials and how people lived and things like that so it's how how old are the children usually are these like pre like primary school or high school so uh, mainly until high school because in Romania we have this program uh, during uh, school year it's a program uh, where the teacher takes the children to visit a museum or takes them to an independent activity. And uh, a colleague of mine from the institute organizes this kind of activities for children to see what archaeology really is. So that's really good to get at a young age to to understand. Okay, what what is this? Uh, not to just leave them the media. Yeah, and also, also the, museums have, the museums have this kind of activities with children, this kind of workshops with children to teach them what archaeology is, how uh, prehistoric people lived. So in, so it's, but it's mainly for the children. For the adults, it depends on the adults from where they want to get their education, their information. I mean, as an adult, you should be able to discern from sources what advice would you give someone in maybe in high school or or in university who's if they're thinking about 
you may be possibly going into a, a career in archaeology or something related. What what advice might you give them? To succeed in archaeology? I think I would tell them to work hard, to try to work in a team. I, I would also advise everybody that would like to follow a career in archaeology just to take every possibility that they get to travel in other countries to see other field works, to see other ways of analyzing the materials, to have this uh, all kind of all kind of activities outside of the country that, that they are living in and where they are forming their, their themselves as archaeologists because you need a you need a lot of I don't know um, to see how other people are doing the same things. Right, you said variety. Yeah, you variety. Well, you you did your you did your training. It wasn't in Romania for for the use where. Yeah, it was not. Uh, no, it, no, it was not in Romania because in Romania I wouldn't have anywhere to train for use where. I did it in um, in Leiden in the Netherlands, and that's why I'm advising people to uh, to go outside Romania to see how people are doing things outside and to get what they uh, to get their information from outside Romania to I don't know to have like this. Um, diverse view, various views on how archaeology is all around the world, because it improves, it improves yourself. I guess good advice for any, anyone, even not just in Romania, uh, you could probably give that same advice, that last part of advice to people anywhere, go abroad or go to another university, see how someone else does the same thing, what's their method, what are their thoughts on it. Uh, Okay, well, I think we'll tie up the, the discussion there. Thanks for coming on and talking to our audience about what you do and about, about archaeology in general. Okay, thank you for inviting me to share my, my opinion. Have a good day. Okay, thank you. So it's also night in Romania, not <laughs> day. Oh, right. Yeah, it's a big time difference between us. Yeah, okay. Okay, well, I'll say good, good night then. <laughs> okay, so have a good day. Bye. You've been listening to the Archeo Cafe podcast. For more episodes and news, check out our website or social media pages. Links can be found in the episode notes or simply by searching online for Archeo Cafe podcast. If you have any questions or comments for the presenters or guest speakers, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, keep your trench walls straight and vertical.